Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by business editor and columnist Greg Jefferson. Columnist and editorial board member Kerry Clack. We're recording this on Monday, September 27th, and we're going to talk a little bit today about the possibility of Beto O'Rourke running for governor and what the, the 20. 2022 uh, gubernatorial race might look like, and also talk about the situation that uh, has got national attention that's uh, happened in Del Rio, where we've had uh, an influx of, of migrants, primarily from from Haiti, arriving at the border, and uh, talk a little bit about about what what has happened there. But I want to start off by discussing the District 118 special election. This is a, a Texas House seat that's it's kind of rooted in the South Side, but it winds its way around to the northeast part of Bayer County. It's a solid Democratic seat under normal conditions. The, the the most recent state representative there, Leo Pacheco, a Democrat, won last year by 17 percentage points. And that's that's generally the way things go there. But special elections are really unusual situations. The the one time that we had a Republican there, retired firefighter uh, John Lujan, uh, it happened in 2016 when we had a special election runoff that he won. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. We've we, This time we've got three Democrats and two Republicans in this special election. The three Democrats are Frank Ramirez, who is a, a former uh, legislative and, and city council aide. We've got Desi Martinez, who's a, a local attorney. Uh, Katie Farias, who is a Southside uh, ISD trustee and the daughter-in-law of former state representative Joe Farias. On the Republican side, we've got John Lujan, who's running again. And we've got Adam Salyer, who uh, is an all-out Donald Trump loyalist. Uh, at, I was at one polling site where his supporters had a banner saying Trump 2024, take America back. So that's that's kind of the basis of his campaign. Now, Kerry, as a member of the editorial board, you got to meet with four of the five candidates last week. Adam Salyer did not appear with the, the editorial board. But I wanted to get kind of your thoughts on the candidates. What what stood out to you from the, the time that you all got to spend with them? Yeah, we met with them um, last week. And to be honest, it almost it it almost uh, flew under our radar that, that this the race was coming up. Right. Uh, but actually, it, it it was unusual in that uh, of all four candidates, all of them were impressive. You know, some, usually mm-hmm. you have at least one that's just a dud, or one that just sure. uh, is so much above the others. But we felt comfortable with all four of them, including Lujan, who you know who's a Republican, but is is not a Trumpster. We ended up endorsing uh, Frank Ramirez. Uh, we thought he stood out a little bit m- more, but all of them were impressive. Desi, uh, uh, Katie, and like I said, John. It was a toss-up. It was a toss-up yeah. of, yeah. of who to go with, a toss-up who will win. One of the things, I, Frank Ramirez is the youngest candidate. I think he's in his late 20s. He's been, uh, he, he yeah. served in, uh, as a legislative aide to Tomas Uresti and then at city council with uh, Ana Sandoval. I, I just from the the little of kind of uh, a few conversations I've had with them, I kind of uh, get a kind of a Ray Saldana 2011 sort of feeling about him, and just it, just in terms of his youth, his energy, he's really articulate, smart guy. I mean, do, do you see any parallels there at all? That's that's a that's, that's a good analogy. It's a good comparison. I think it's because uh, we over the, the past year we, there were a couple other candidates who we kind of fell in different races who also kind of fell into that, that race of down your paradigm. And, um, yeah, reading your column yesterday, I thought, yeah, that that's exactly what it is. And the way, yeah. he, the way he communicates, the way he talks, um, uh, just precise answers, doesn't go too far, 
gives you just enough. Yeah, yeah. But clearly is, is capable and knows what he's talking about, despite his, despite his youth. So John Levon is, you know, he's, he's, he is a strong uh, pro-lifer, has, oh, you know, as far as I can tell, at least for his, in his public life, always has been. Yeah. Uh, do you think that's going to have any bearing on this race? I mean, is abortion politics going to influence voters in 118, do you think, or no? Boy. I mean, especially, I mean, obviously, given SB8 and, you know, the fact that it went into effect September 1st. And I think it's something that that Katie is definitely uh, uh, taking aim at. I just I just wonder if uh, if the race, you know, it, it could, but I, I I don't know if it's going if it, if it it would have any more of an impact than normal. Maybe if there had been more of a a longer runway time to, to this yeah. to, to this race, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that you know by the time, if, especially if say if Luhan gets elected. Come you know, come next year, it, it definitely will have an impact. Yeah, I, one of the things that that I, and as Carrie said, uh, Katie Farias, who's the one woman in the race, I mean, has has you know, uh, kind of the the crux of her campaign has been that there's a war on on women coming from Texas Republicans, yeah. and mm-hmm. she has talked about the abortion issue and the recent uh, restrictive law that was passed in Texas. Also, when the when on Friday when I was at the Sims Library, which is the kind of the north was the north uh, side location for early voting, and this is kind of seems to be more of a kind of a Republican part of the district. I heard Adam Salyer's people talking to. Uh, to voters and, and, and saying, you know, he's, he's pro-life and, you know, he's against baby killing and so on. So they were pushing that issue. I don't know how much impact it'll have, but, um, but it, it, I think it's interesting that I think it may be in, in different parts of the district, you know, one, one argument might, might be effective on that in that North part of the district yeah. and the, the opposite argument might work on the South side. You know, that, that'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the the governor's race. Uh, Democrats have been kind of in limbo for a while, um, kind of waiting to see what Beto O'Rourke, the, the former El Paso congressman, might might do. I mean, for for a while, I mean, the word has been that he was probably going to run, but he was he's been really involved in sort of the voting rights issue, um, particularly with his organization powered by people, and that he wanted to focus on that before he committed to a governor's race. In the last week, this thing has kind of heated up. Axios had a story saying that he's almost certainly going to run. And uh, he told the New York Times Sway podcast that he's he's making calls. He's talking to people about it. Greg, I wanted to kind of get yours. I, I had two questions on this. One is, is, is there a, a, a real path to victory for Beto O'Rourke against Greg Abbott in 2022? And the second question being, <laughs> is there any, is there any better <laughs> option for Democrats if... Other than Beth Orr, I mean, would they would there really be any <laughs> better possibility for them in that race? Well, let me let me start with uh, the the second question, and I'm going to shamelessly steal an observation you made in your your column on. I love that. Thank you. Uh, recently, recently, <laughs> and I'm going to pretend like uh, this is my thought, which is it's like okay, so you know, you try to figure out who the Democratic alternatives to Beto O'Rourke would be. Um, you know, regardless of whether you think he would be a strong candidate or not, who else is there out there? And, you know, obviously you think of the Castros that that's, you know, uh, right. there are a couple that come to mind. Specifically, you look at Joaquin Castro, he, you know, on his face, I think it would be a really strong candidate. You know, I think he connects with voters. He's well-spoken. He's personable. 
But I mean, do you really, he's also uh, becoming kind of a powerhouse in the yeah. House of Representatives. So as you know, if you're, if you're, you know, a Democrat who spends a lot of time thinking about this stuff, uh, it seems like you probably want him to stay in the House accumulating power, just like mm-hmm. it used to be in the old days where, you know, you, you know, he's in a secure district. Uh, there's no reason to think that uh, he won't be reelected time and again. And I'm talking about Joaquin. Castro. And, you know, at some point he's going to have a lot of power in the House of Representatives. Uh, there's no telling at this point uh, how far he could go. So do you really want to mess with that? But, you know, you get beyond the Castro's and yeah, I mean, the list is pretty short. I mean, Nobody. this is, you know, it's still, you know, this is, be- they haven't, you know, it's been what, at least a generation and a half and a half since Democrats won a statewide office. Yeah. So the bench is pretty, you know, they're just not disciplined to win and they don't have, they don't have a bench. You know, this is reflective of that. You know, they've, they've lost consistently now, you know, how O'Rourke would do against Abbott in 2022. I mean, you know, what, what Greg Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and, uh, you know, Attorney General Ken Paxton are doing now is, you know, it's anathema to a lot of urban dwelling and more progressive voters, including, you know, that reaches into the Mm -hmm. suburbs. And I'm talking here about, you know, abortion restrictions, uh, constitutional carry, Mm -hmm. you know, they're mishandling or, you know, just the, their opposition to mask mandates to combat COVID-19. Yeah. The list kind of goes on. Um, you know, they've really ticked off cities. Uh, a lot of what they've been doing, you know, and especially in terms of, you know, voting restrictions impact large cities and big urban counties around the state. They've been very clear about that. Like they've, you yeah. know, they've, they are picking fights intentionally with big, kind of democratic leaning cities. And, you know, I get the feeling there's going to be a huge turnout uh, on, on the progressive side in 2022. Is it going to be enough mm-hmm. to counteract rule, you know, conservative rule voters who are going to support Greg Abbott? Cause I'm just going to assume Greg Abbott's going to win the nomination. Yeah. The Republican nomination. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, it could be a close one, like, you know, way closer than Lupe Valdez got, you know, in 2018. Yeah. She I mean, was the Democratic candidate. On the, you know, on the issue of like the suburbs and what's happening there. I mean, this, just this morning before we started the podcast, the proposed congressional maps were put out for Texas. And I mean, I'm just beginning to kind of make sense of them. But I, the, the the initial observations have been that it looks like Republicans are really kind of nervous about the suburbs. And they're kind of, these districts seem to be drawn mm-hmm. in a way where they're just afraid of the suburban vote and what might, what happened to them. And so they're, they're, they're apparently pretty cautious mm-hmm. in the way they drew this. I think that's, that's one interesting thing. Um, but, you know, Carrie, I just want to, want to get your thoughts. We saw, you know, Beto O'Rourke run a pretty remarkable Senate race against Ted Cruz in 2018, got within 2.6%. We saw him run a really underwhelming presidential campaign in 2020. He actually got out of the race be- at late in 2019. Where do you think he stands now in Texas politics? And, and what do you, how do you see his prospects? Beto is is the de facto leader of the Texas Democrats. Right. And Beto is a is a phenomenon. Now, a phenomenon can be good or bad, but a phenomenon is something that you can't completely 
capture or explain. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know, we you go back to 2018, and and I think with the exception of Abraham Lincoln running against Stephen Douglas in, in what 1858. Mm-hmm. There's, there's never been a U.S. Senate candidate who became a national figure strictly a, on his run for the Senate. Yeah, I don't point. I don't include Obama in 04 because Obama was going to win that that seat. And it's his keynote speech, which which made Obama Obama. That's right. And as close as Bethel made, he also he had coattails in 2018. Mm-hmm. And Greg is completely right when we talk about who else was going to run. I mean, it was it was either the Castros or, or Bethel. And the thing about Beto is this, you mentioned earlier, Gilbert, his uh, uh, Powered by People organization, which was originally formed to, to register votes. But what, he was, what he's been able to do in moments of crisis, be it the, the Texas freeze or with COVID, is to mobilize these thousands of volunteers into doing the work that needs to be done, wellness check and delivering food, which, which shows that he's a pretty good organizer. And I, I think Bechtel, I don't, I don't think that he wanted or wants to run. I think he would prefer to wait to 2000, 2024. Mm-hmm. But this is one of those rare moments when the people or the people of your party are demanding that you run. And uh, I know he's afraid about being a three-time loser in a period of four or five years. But if he runs uh, a strong race, which I think he, he will, and if he wants to run in 2024, I think people will be OK with that. I just I don't there's no one else yeah. but him at this point. Yeah. And I right. think, he, you know, I, this is something I think. And Greg and you make excellent observations about about the suburbs. And that's especially where you could see SB8 hurting Republicans in 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 2022. So, I, you know, I think and I wouldn't have thought this a year ago. But mm-hmm. and, I, th- you know, if I had a bet on it, I think that Abbott's going to win. Yeah. But I don't. Rule anything else. It is funny how in Texas you're kind of conditioned to. It's like okay, there's some really good arguments uh, in favor <laughs> of Abbott losing in 2022, but he's probably going to win because <laughs> <laughs> we've just like, seen so many cases <laughs> where it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Hey, what about <laughs> let me throw. Let me throw this out. If uh-huh. if Abbott should win, if Abbott, because I do think we're getting to the point. I think that four years from now. This bench, this Democratic bench is going to be we're going to see it. It's beginning to fill out and we're going to mm-hmm. have other candidates. Mm-hmm. We're not just going to be looking for the Castro's or Beto. Yeah. So but I think that this is just my observation that if Abbott does win uh, next year, that come 2026, the leading Democratic gubernatorial candidate is Lena Hidalgo. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I think a lot of people, you know, the Lena Duggo, the the Harris County uh, judge, who I'm mean, just such an impressive leader, and yeah. and at such a young age. But I th- I think the and there have been people talking about it for this 2022 race. But I think that I think most people who are fans of hers would would think this is it just it's so early for her, you know, and it's and it's you know it's just like the time isn't right. And I've talked to a couple of people who have talked to her. And she she wants to serve two full terms yeah. as as Harris County judge, and it works yes. out perfectly. She you know she she gets reelected in two thousand twenty two, then come yeah. then twenty twenty six is what's next. Oh, that's a great point. I, you know, one thing that that uh, I wanted to mention too. I mean, you know, Abbott's uh, favorability numbers, his approval numbers have have dropped in recent months. Uh, there was a recent Dallas Morning News, uh, University of Texas at Tyler 
poll, which had his approval at 45%. I think it had come down from 59% or so. But one of the interesting things about it is Betha was a few points behind in this in a hypothetical matchup, but the person who was ahead of him uh, was Matthew McConaughey. Yes. And so I, 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 I care, I'll go back to you. Like, I mean, we, I, I tend to think we're probably, it's probably going to be one-on-one Betho versus Greg Abbott, but there's always a possibility that we could see Matthew McConaughey and even the possibility of Joe Strauss, who has people, including his friend, Lyle Larson, encouraging him to run as an independent for governor. Where are we going to be left if we have that kind of, you know, th- three or four major candidates um, all competing uh, a year from now? Well, it, that's a, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that way because it depends on which three and which four. If it's McConaughey and Strauss doesn't run, then that really messes things up for for Democrats. Because yeah. you, uh, I mean, that's assuming that McConaughey's running as an independent. It's, it, I don't know if we're assuming that. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know what do. he's going to. Yeah, uh, yeah. No one like and like you know, no one knows what he really thinks except he's probably pro-legalization of marijuana. I think we can take a guess on that. But, <laughs> One issue can't but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, mean, I don't... Look, it, he's got my vote for that. I mean, no, no question. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I think that it would definitely, it would definitely hurt uh, Democrats. Now, if it's... If, if McConaughey doesn't run and Strauss doesn't run, boy. Now, if all four of them are in the race... Then anything can happen, but I, I, I think that the only way that Beto, that the Democrat or the Beto can win, is if it's one on one with him and Abbott, yeah. Or as in your scenario, McConaughey and and Strauss are in it because then, boy, you you're cutting the vote four ways. Yeah, I mean, I was mentioned before we started that that would kind of put us in that 2006 kinky Friedman territory. <laughs> say, say you've got a race where it's uh, Beto O'Rourke, uh, Greg Abbott, and Joe Strauss as yeah the independent candidate. I mean, I could I could see a scenario where you've got Joe Strauss cutting into Beto's vote, and I think that says a lot about kind of the state yeah. of the Texas Republican Party that the governor could win just on the base of this hard right kind of Trumpist electorate. And, you know, mm-hmm. moderate moderate Republicans, you know, they were probably going to vote for Beto O'Rourke, I would bet, a lot of them. Uh, and now yeah. you've got, you introduce Joe Strauss yeah. and he becomes attractive to, you know, kind of moderate conservatives, if there are any of those less left in Texas. And, you know, that kind of clears a path for Greg Abbott to win. I mean, I think that's totally... Yeah you know, possible. And, you know, that might mm-hmm. not even, that scenario might not even change much if you throw in Matthew McConaughey. Strauss is a more intriguing candidate than McConaughey, actually, in what yeah. he can do yeah. and, and the way he can change yeah, the yeah. dynamics of this race, because you could, you could see, a, you could see him winning. Uh-huh. You could also see him, like, as Greg mm-hmm. said, taking votes away from, uh, from, uh, from Beto. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap things up, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, an issue that has been uh, in, in the national news over the past couple of weeks. We saw an influx of, of migrants in Del Rio, uh, most of them uh, Haitian refugees and um, the, forming a, a migrant camp there under the, the international bridge. President Joe Biden got a lot of criticism from a Republican saying, well, this is a chaotic situation and this is it's your fault. Um, the, he's also gotten criticism from Democrats saying his use of Title 42, his, uh, which was a, a public health policy that Donald Trump used to start expelling, automatically expelling migrants at the border, 
during the COVID uh, pandemic, that 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 has, I think, a lot of Democrats see this as or uh, are, are really unhappy with the, the use of this policy. I want to ask you, Carrie. I mean, when, when you look at, I, I've been trying to kind of make sense of it, and I've listened to some, you know, some interviews with 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 people in the administration. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how Title 42 is being applied and and how it's where it's not being applied when it comes to the the Del Rio situation because. We know that that thousands have been sent back to Haiti, and we also know there are thousands who have are having their cases being processed in immigration courts. Um, the way Biden had had handled Title Forty Two that was different from Trump was he said unaccompanied children we're gonna we were gonna let them be processed. Uh, everyone else would be expelled immediately. But I can't. It's not really clear to me w- with the Del Rio. Uh, case how they're how they're applying it i mean have you does it make any sense to you it, it doesn't i think they're using it as a dodge as a cover and, cause I, and I think early i think early on that there were some some families that were sent back including children right before uh i think a judge recently said they couldn't so i i think they're using it as a cover and you know in the, in the images you know border patrol on horseback and and uh, i mean aside from just the, the fact that Immigration continues to be an issue that that neither side gets a handle of, but mm-hmm. with the Haitians specifically, and it's hard to get beyond the the issue of race, mm-hmm. whether it's, you're talking about Haitians, Cubans, or Haitians, and, and everybody. And just, I mean, folks need to just take some time and, and, and read a little bit about the history of, of Haiti and see how intertwined the United States is in its history mm-hmm. and what we did to keep it from developing, uh, not just us, but, but Europe. I mean, Haiti is a country which you know, the first and only successful slave revolt. And they end up having to pay the modern equivalent of about $20 billion to France to be recognized. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that, that's like in 1825 and up until 1947 or so. And then we wonder why Haiti is in the situation that it is. Right. So right. it's, it's to me, it's just outrageous. And that's whatever they were, whether it's Haitians or Central Americans or Mexicans, but to be treated like that and yeah. to have folks on horseback calling your country shit yeah, and doing whatever they were doing with the horses reins. And then for the Biden administration, frankly, to not to not be more outraged than they are. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's right. And, you know, the, the thing is, too, that, you know, we're Haiti has what it has had to endure in recent years, just on, in terms of natural disasters, the 2010 earthquake yeah. and just this couple of months ago, um, another another major earthquake. You had a, a political presidential assassination. And one of the things, and, and Greg, I want to ask you, you're going to get your thoughts on this, that we're hearing. And this seems to come up constantly now with the border issue is this this theory, which which known as the great replacement theory, which we, we've we hear Tucker Carlson uh, putting this out there on, on mm. national TV on a regular basis. But Dan Patrick went on his show, or I, I think he was actually on, on Laura Ingram's show recently, saying the same thing. Uh, Matt Gates is uh, from Florida is saying this that that this is all sort of sort of part of a, a democratic plan to let migrants into the border so they can uh, change the shape of the U.S. electorate and, and ensure that Democrats will win elections, you know, indefinitely. I mean, what, Greg, what, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's a twofer for demagogues. It allows you to, you know, one. it's basically a new avenue to cast kind of the the uh, 
the quality of our elections in question to say, look, these we all know these are fraudulent. By the way, here's how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And they get to scapegoat, <laughs> you know, yet, you know, another another community of people uh, wanting to, you know, coming into the country. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of all of a piece and it do, you know, it's they they get they get two you know, two jolts with the electorate. Uh, that they're they're targeting, which are you know Trump supporters, they get to kind of alienate, kind of scapegoat Haitians, and they get to call you know our future elections into question. It's a great deal yeah, for get yeah. totally. And Kerry, this is basically kind of part of. I mean, this is this is one of those you know we're losing our country kind of things, which I mean we've been hearing this sort of message for for many years now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, and the ironic thing is, is uh, we've heard it so long, and now we're at a point we are losing our country, but not in the way that they intend. Yeah. It's because of them, and them, I mean, the ones who've been saying we're losing our country, and those who are the one, you know, the ones that you and Greg are talking about with the Great Replacement Theory and the Abbots and the whole strategy yeah. of suppressing votes. Yeah. yeah, we are losing our country. The self-fulfilling prophecy, not in the way which they intended. It is. And, 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 you know, we had uh, this past week, uh, you know, the news that David Simon, the creator of The Wire, was he was going to do a a documentary series. And I think he was going to film it in the Dallas Fort Worth area. But he was so upset about this restrictive abortion law that he said, I'm I'm Mm going to find another place. And Chip Roy, a congressman whose district includes San Antonio, said good. And when someone questioned him about this and said, you know, this is all this culture war stuff is really hurting just the economic, the economy of the, of the state. And he came back and said, well, if you know, if you're, if you're not happy with how we do things in Texas, leave quickly. And I, I just thought this is, something is being lost here. Yeah. I, and I, he's not the only one who thinks this way. He, he put it out there on social media, but he's certainly not the only elected official who thinks this way, that your job, that basically there's only one way to be Texan. And the, if you don't, if you're not on board, just get out. And I think there's some of the, some thought among you know, with some of our elected officials on a national level that, you know, if you don't, you're not on board, you don't belong in the country. If you're not on board with a certain agenda. That was a great column that you wrote also. And you had that great line, which I, I, I about, uh, about it seems to be the ones who aren't born in Texas, who seem to have this outsized idea of what it means to be a Texan. I actually put that quote out yeah, and you, tweeted it. Thank you so much. For that. You're, along with your column. But I think a lot of people think it, think it was well, I think a lot of people think it was my quote. And so going back to what Greg said at the beginning when he was going to steal one of your lines, I just want to say, Greg, that in the black church, when it comes to appropriating other people, another minister's sermon, it's like the first time when I do that, it's yours. Yeah, that's right. The second time it's mine. So, well, like, don't surprise, don't be surprised, Gilbert, to see that observation in one of my columns pretty soon. And I'm well, not going to give you credit. Then, uh, well, now that my ego's been puffed up, I think we're at a, we're, this is a good stopping point. So, um, guys, thank you so much. This is, this is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And uh, I want to mention before we, we wrap things up that uh, Texas lost, I think, one of its uh, maybe under-recognized political giants yesterday, Sissy yes. Ferenthold. She yes, was a real it. progressive champion who ran for governor in 1972 um, and at a time when conservatives pretty much dominated the Democratic Party, made it into a runoff, also uh, was had her name placed in nomination for vice president of the United States in 72 and, and got a substantial number of votes. And uh, she was someone who just was, I don't think she necessarily uh, had great political ambitions for herself. She just wanted to, uh, she had certain ideals that she she felt needed to be represented in our political process in this state and she she did that and so we wanted to 
to acknowledge her and say uh, rest in peace to Sissy Farenthold. For everyone who's listening in, thank you so much. We appreciate it. And we'll be back soon. Take care.